Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Swarm, a podcast about design, architecture, and the creative community. I'm your host, James Catalano. And I am your host, Seamus McGuire. So this past week, we had the privilege to interview Gary Solomon Jr., the co-owner of Solomon Group here in the city of New Orleans. Yeah, it was great. We talked about his business, his personal interests, and the city of New Orleans. We think it's... It was, a, it was a really fun episode because we actually took ourselves outside of the studio for the first time and interviewed him on site in his home. It was a great interview, and I think y'all will really enjoy it. Let's go to the interview. All right, guys. So today's guest, we have Gary Solomon, Jr. Gary, you are the owner of Solomon Group here in New Orleans. Um, can you give our listeners an understanding of what Solomon Group is? Sure. So um, we started this business about 10 years ago in New Orleans. It was... Uh, three of us, uh, three partners, and an employee or two, and we've got about 300 folks now. So it's what uh, <laughs> my role in it has is, has changed a bit over the years, um, from being very hands-on in each project to now running the direction of the company um, on a more strategic level. And but even with all that change, the what we are has not evolved, and that's been really um, I think a testament to that we set out on the right path in the beginning. Um, our tagline is the art of bringing stories to life, and so. The through line in all of our projects is there's a live audience involved, whether it's a um, TV broadcast, a live TV broadcast project, if it's a museum exhibit where live attendees are passing through, huge concert series, a corporate sales meeting, wherever there is a live audience um, and without the ability for retake um, is usually where you find our work. And so we, we build and produce um, and activate events and exhibits all over the U.S. now. Well, thank you. Thank you for the explanation. I would not have done that justice, so I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and it's good to hear that everything is live because we definitely, uh, as designers and architects and even podcast hosts, we do have the comfort of knowing that we can edit and do multiple renditions of things, whereas you know, in the entertainment business, a lot of things are live, so there's a lot right. of pressure. There is. You, you have one chance to get it right. I mean, the only world we're in where, where you somewhat have a retake, right, is in the museum space. You build an exhibit that's going to last, you know, a decade. And so obviously, if for some off mark we didn't hit it perfectly on in the beginning, we can always, you know, tweak as we go. But we approach it as though you got one shot. And so when we open that exhibit or we open that event, um, we treat it as such that it's our one chance to make an impression for a live audience. And um, and the way that people interact with it is live, right? I mean, there's not the the, the security of um, the TV screen they can't reach through, you know? I mean, you're in a live environment, whether it's a concert or it's an exhibit. I mean, it's hands-on, it's feet pounding, it's, you know, there's this human reaction to what you're doing, and so it really is that human element that makes everything we do uh, come to life and what we strive for. Um, Gary, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background pre-Solomon Group. Sure. Um, you're a local St. Martin's grad. Mm-hmm. Um, you went off to New York's University Tisch School of the Arts, is that correct? I did, yep. Um, or you studied theater design. Yeah, so I, even when I was in New Orleans um, in my last two years of high school, I was lucky enough to find NOCA, and I studied theater design um, in the latter half of the day for uh, my last two years in high school, and while I was at St. Martin's in the first half of the day. But yeah, I was 13-year St. Martin's grad, two years at NOCA um, on the back end, and then went off to NYU. And we, I was in a very small program. There was like 12 of us, I think, um, 
one girl didn't make it, so there was 11. Uh, we whittled <laughs> her down. Over. <laughs> she knew it was going to be hard after about the first week and didn't make it. But there were other 11 of us made it through. And it was a uh, real intensive um, conservatory-style training program for theater design. Um, and my focus was primarily lighting design okay. and stage management in the beginning. And about midway through, I shifted my focus to producing. Okay. Um, so well, Why the shift? Well, to be very candid, I think I was interning and working on Broadway and um, kind of pursuing what I thought was going to be a traditional theater path for a career. I stepped back and I looked around all the people that were the most successful. There was only like four or five of them in the world that were working on the shows I wanted to work on. And they were working a lot harder than I know that I could do. And they had a lot more um, discipline in that one area. And, you know, you had... I think I realized that to be the best lighting designer, I had to, I would have had to kind of abandon every other interest I had and put everything into it. And I had a real, um, I really enjoyed the diversity of all areas around stagecraft and theater design. So from scenic to costumes and figuring out the money and the logistics. And so producing was what I realized, I think I always wanted to do. I just didn't quite understand where the role was. Um, so I, I was advised by a really smart professor. He was like, you really should look at this whole like corporate event business and music festivals and branded environments. And like, there's people out there that need what we do in the theater, but that aren't in traditional theater paths where you can kind of be a bit more diverse. And so that's why I ended up making the shift. Gary, I commend you for coming back to New Orleans because I feel like you're getting your education at NYU through lighting design and you're, you're, I don't know where your brain's at at that point, but I feel like you have so many possibilities to go really practice anywhere. At, at what point in your mind do you make the shift and you're like, look, New Orleans is my home. I do want to kind of make place there. Why come back? So when I decided not to pursue a traditional theater path, it kind of opened up the variety of where I could live. You know, if I wanted to pursue a traditional theater path, the obvious choices were New York and Chicago and, you know, London or something like that. And, um, but there was actually this amazing uh, group of people that were graduating from NYU at the same time that were in the acting programs that we as theater design supported, right? And um, there was a group of them that were not from New Orleans that were going to move to New Orleans. Okay. Oddly enough. Um, meanwhile, um, my grandparents were getting old and parents were rebuilding their house, house post-Katrina. And um, I knew there was like a personal time that I probably had a very finite window in in which I could go spend time with my grandparents before they passed. And sure enough, they did. Um, and so there was like a personal reason why. And then, and then that, that all these acting colleagues were moving to New Orleans. I at least felt like there was some community um, back home. And I think, I'm a, you know, I think I'm a good example of so many people who probably had it not been for the storm in 2005 probably wouldn't have had a reason to move back home. Um, but then once I did, I was so happy to find myself back here and that I could um, build a, you know, build a career here was something that was um, not apparent to me before I left for New York, but only did I realize that was possible once I came back. Tell, tell us about your partners, because you did not start Solomon Group alone. Um, so you moved back, and how does that naturally so they, yeah, they're, look, they're awesome. They are the technical and kind of operations minds behind what we do. And there's no chance we could do it without them. Um, and so they're active every day in the business. They probably work twice as many hours as I do. Um, I'm working a full week. And so, you know, they're working, you know, two and a half weeks in a week. They, uh, they're incredible. Steve ran the production departments for the Superdome and what was then the New Orleans Arena for about a decade. Jonathan ran entertainment technology and attraction development for what was Six Flags theme parks here pre-Katrina and then ended up in the Six Flags corporate kind of environment um, after Katrina. So there's a lot of diversity in each of our backgrounds, and that's what gives us the ability to work in so many disciplines now. That really is so niche. You have someone coming from the Superdome background, someone coming from... Um, 
six flags. That's, yeah. That's brilliant. So, I mean, if you think what we do now, it's events and right. exhibits, right? right? And so Steve brings that event expertise um, and Jonathan in that built environment space. What What's a theme park but a built environment? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we do in museums is, is trending so much toward being immersive space where it's more akin to a theme park um, than what a traditional museum environment was a decade ago. So it's really that diversity in those two backgrounds with the foundation of my theatrical training. I think that we were able to focus in on we call the art of bringing stories to life you know that there is we might not be the one that's creating what the the strategy or the story itself is but that there is an art to even just the the physical execution of those things sure um and so that's what we try to um, yeah i mean you guys are directing experiences right i mean you know someone someone's writing a screenplay maybe um like you're saying that you're kind of given maybe potentially some story, but you guys are literally bringing this thing to life mm-hmm. um, in every facet of yeah. what I understand is movie, but really it's experience for what you guys do. Well, right? it seems like a very tech-heavy um, industry that you've gotten yourself into, and I think we can relate to that in that there's a very technical side of the architecture and design industry. Could you walk us through maybe like what is a project or what happens on the back end of this production? If, if a client comes to you, how do you assist them? So a great example of that is uh, we're four or five years into producing the um, multi-day concert series for the college football playoffs championship. So it changes every year, right, depending on the city that's um, secured it. And it's a great story for New Orleans because it'll be in New Orleans in 2020, I believe. Um, so, so far we've done Dallas and Atlanta and Tampa and Phoenix, and um, this year will be out in San Jose, and then it'll be in New Orleans to follow. And that's a great example that the, the league – um, uh, identifies that you know there's a need as part of the championship weekend uh, for a multi-day concert series to uh, you know give sponsors more inventory to you know appeal to fans to give fans a better experience and kind of round out that it's not just about game day um, but there's a whole you know build up toward it and so we're charged with identifying the location with um, with uh, once the artists are identified by the league and their talent booking group. Um, interfacing with them to create an environment where they can be really successful, figuring out how sponsors activate on site, um, interfacing with the city and local municipalities around the code and the ingress and egress. Uh, And then really the fun part is the visual and kind of audience experience development. So what's it look like on arrival? How does does the stage interact with what's going on where ESPN is broadcasting from all day long for things like uh, Sports Nation? I mean, it's just an incredible amount of activity that's happening and each of them has has a logistics component to it. It's got a, a bit of an aesthetic component to it and it's got a business component to it. So the full orchestration of that effort. Um, this was a really cool year. In fact, it was the first year that the the program expanded beyond just the th- multi-day concert series for live audience, but we ended up being um, the halftime uh, show location for Kendrick Lamar. So the game happened, um, you know, first and second quarters or in the stadium, and then it pivoted out to our site. It was as though we were the big watch party um, where Kendrick played, and we did our seven or eight minute halftime show from there, and then pivoted back to the game. That's awesome. And so we so expanded from like you know forty thousand people to. 20 million viewers like in a matter of you know those six minutes right uh so it was um it was a great example of where we really um are best you know when put to use it's that whole expanse 
of services that we provide. Tell me, tell me you got to meet Kendrick Lamar. I did not, but uh, I will say that his team's awesome. We've done a couple shows with him now. It's funny. We've done like three Kendrick shows in the last like eight months. And so now our, our team, his team are somewhat on, on first name, um, which is quite nice, but I am not on a first name with Kendrick. Hey, that's great to even just be acquainted with the production team on their end. They were awesome. And it was, it was funny because we, we figured out how to fit his tour into our set. So it was really important to them that their tour kind of came with them for the halftime show. Yet here we had, you know, Chainsmokers and Jason Derulo and everybody else, you know, for the whole weekend previous. So how we pivoted from our setup for three days to fitting his in and being able to change that overnight um, was a real was a real feat. So they come to you and they have this setup kind of like it's light sound and then the whole audio aspect. And how do you integrate with that? So on that one, there was the only thing we really brought into our into our show that was part of his tour was this really amazing like video contraption, the ceiling that came down and then pivoted into this back wall and his content was mapped to it the way that he, and so that was a real like signature element that's a part of his tour. Everything, we provided everything else, but figuring out how to work the aesthetic of his tour into kind of our existing box. That's you know? pretty, and yeah, that's, a, that's a challenge. So it, it's about like trying to fit the, the spirit of the tour into the six minutes and the parameters that we have of the halftime show and it's a temporary point in time where you have to create this moment and this experience for people and then you have to not only have to build it up do the actual work during the live performance but then tear it down right isn't there a whole other aspect of making this a temporary thing yeah i mean so look when we go to a show in the superdome or a venue like that like there's 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 bathrooms and walls and security points and like there's a lot of infrastructure right when you go to a park that's meant for people to be able to run through, you know, and get their exercise and free and open to the public every day. And suddenly you want to build it for 40,000 people to be safe and to have amenities that are just human amenities. I mean, there's a whole other level of logistics. We did like 30 days of load in on that show. We had people living in that park almost literally for like a month up into it. Um, it was it was a real feat. It was one of our biggest, I'd say, and endeavors to date in that kind of space. After after elaborating on just that operation, it makes sense why you're 300 people strong. Like you have so many divisions yeah. that need to be taken care of, whether it's the code aspect or the design aspect or, I mean. A lot of moving components yeah, that are happening in real time. Whereas for the architecture side, we get to, you know, kind of vet through things and make sure everything, you know, there's a lot of regulation that we have to go through and a lot of filtering that we have to go through. And we have a lot less pressure, it sounds like. <laughs> well, we're less live, you know. We're we're more calculated. We can we don't we don't reveal until we're comfortable with it. Whereas you guys, I mean I mean, I don't know. I feel like you're always on. You're yeah. as important as the yeah. performer, as the artist. Yeah, correct. Look for the foundation for them to be successful or not. And so that's a really important role. And we recognize kind of where nobody's there to see the show production, right? They're there to see the artist. But if you if you notice um, when an artist is very successful, it's usually when the show production is there supporting them in a way that is almost seamless. Um, And that's when we, you know, if we don't get any praise, we probably did our job perfectly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and I want to touch on that because I think you're a fantastic guest because your business is literally bringing it's you're helping facilitate the pulse of the city through these interactions and uh, events and whatnot. Yet no one really knows that Solomon Group is doing all of these things. You're, you have a very unique business in a sense that, again, like you're saying, if you're doing your job right, no one really knows who you are. You're the man behind the curtain. You're, you're, you are the wizard behind the curtain. It's a lot of chaos behind that curtain, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
No, it's um, true though. I think that people um, people in New Orleans don't understand what we do, and we haven't really put a lot of effort into probably communicating it because there's not a huge client base for us here to be quite candid. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, how many times can you say that a New Orleans-based company is servicing work all around the country? Um, there's a few really good examples of that, and I think it's what we should strive for. That's um, so I don't think it's a bad thing that there's not a huge client base here. I think it's a really positive thing that we're able to export our talent from New Orleans and show it off in the biggest stage as possible around the world. You guys have what's called architainment. Um, that's one of the things that you kind of tout on your website. Is it something you can elaborate on and sure. maybe pick a couple of projects that we can talk about? Yeah, so architainment's a, a, um, a discipline uh, just break the word down, you know, there's a bit of architecture in the front, there's a bit of entertainment in the back, if you put the hyphen in the middle. The best way to describe architainment, in my view, is when you're using entertainment principles in an architectural setting. And so something like bringing a, um, a static surface to life with, you know, kinetic projection mapping or, or animated exterior lighting, like we've done on the Superdome, or like what happens on, even you know, New Orleanians know Luna Fett for the projection mapping happens Correct. on Gallier Hall. Those are great examples where those are entertainment technologies and principles that are bringing to, to life an architectural facade or an architectural space. Um, and so we've got a nice host of work that we've done. Um, in fact, I'd say most people in New Orleans, if they knew what that word was they'd probably know us for that because right. you know when you drive i-10 and you see the superdome how many people say oh i want you to light my backyard because you <laughs> have the superdome and it's like well that's very flattering and all but we don't go anywhere near a project like that you know there's 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 lighting designers that do landscape right but then there's also people like us that can imagine how to bring a facade to life using entertainment principles and entertainment technologies in architectural settings so are, are the bensons coming to you specifically and saying hey we want a specific color for this or is this something that you guys are recommending so we have not um, had to touch the dome in years, and that's okay. positive, right? We set up an amazing system that they can do with as they wish. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of presets that are kind of there for the typical expected events. You know, there's the Saints looks, and there's the there's the Mardi Gras looks, and there's the, like, these things are obvious. Um, but then the palette is there for the facility operations um, team at the dome, so they can you know, on any given whim, kind of flip it around and do what they want. Um, and so we gave them a really strong platform. Um, and really, they get to do the work now of kind of making the day-by-day -day selections of what's it going to look like. The idea behind it um, was not just to have a kaleidoscope running around the building, right? right that right. sometimes you drive by and that's what you see. And I'm like, I don't know if that was the intent. <laughs> um, but I'm glad you're, you're, you're enjoying the tools, that <laughs> the toys that you have. But the idea was, and it was Alan Eskew, who was a great architect in New Orleans. It was a good friend of mine and he passed a couple years back um, and Alan and I got together and it was a kind of a collective idea he said you know I think that there's something missing we were we had just finished working on Champion Square together Alan was the lead architect on that we built it and we were standing in Champion Square and we turned around one night and the dome was it was it just disappeared in the skyline and we just built this amazing facility in Champion Square and then to anchor but then the anchor building, the reason that Champions were existed was to, you know, be the pre-function or ancillary event space for the dome, really, more than anything. And you turn around and the dome was just like, you know, it had this amazing skin during the day that you'd see. Right. And as soon as the sun went down, you know, 12 hours out of the day, you didn't even notice it. And it just looked like there was this, you know, uh, crater in the skyline. And Alan said, you know, I think we've got to do something to, to 
bring that building to life. And I said, well, gosh, you know, can I just come out here one night and bring a bunch of gear and guys and let's just start playing. That's awesome. And we sat out there for a couple nights in a row and just started throwing stuff on the side of the building. And we found a manufacturer that wanted to work with us. And we brought in some custom product that we had them kind of prototype up for us. And next thing you know, it was like two weeks later, I think we were still there doing that. Um, And by that point, now the Bensons had come through and the Dome folks had come through. And we came up with a concept that kind of brought the... The idea was there's so much energy when you're in the dome. How do, how do you connect that energy from inside to the passersby outside? And so uh, while the kaleidoscope spins around it some nights and there's nothing going on inside, I think mm, that might not have been the intent because the intent should have been and, and was that it would be a way to kind of bring what's happening inside to outside or to use it as a, as a, um, a symbol um, for certain special occasions and, and certain commemorative things as well. I will say it's 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 well photographed at night now that we do have exterior lighting. And I think it's it's a fantastic success. It's a beacon of the city now and you can as you're saying you can definitely feel the mood right. and or or the theme of the night. It's like, "Oh, wow, I didn't realize, you know, I forgot the Pelicans were playing because the Pelicans colors are up." Right. And it, it's such a it's such a great success. My wife and I when we drive on the interstate by, uh, she has this thing she always says, Wow, dome, dome looking good tonight. Dome looking good. <laughs> dome looking That's very good. sweet. I need a bumper sticker that says that. <laughs> um, Gary, can we can we touch base on, you guys do a lot of work now outside of the city. Is there a specific project that you're proud of that, that you'd like to kind of hone in on? Sure. I mean, so we've talked a bit about, you know, our containment project, like what we've done the Dome many years ago. We've talked about um, college football playoffs in the music series and halftime show we do. So there's events and there's architainment, but then we do a lot of work in exhibits. And a great exhibit example is we just finished um, at George Washington's Mount Vernon, Virginia, the renovation of this 4D theater experience, kind of like Beyond All Boundaries if you've gone to the World War II Museum and seen it there, um, but tells the story of, of Washington leading the work of the Revolutionary War, and there's, you know, the seats shake and the snow comes down and you feel the wind in your face, and so it like really kind of moves you in that way. And then adjacent to it, um, there's a new facility called Beat Washington, which is a situational interactive, and 36 um, uh, museum attendees go in and they get put in the seat that Washington um, would have been in to make certain decisions um, that he was faced with. And so you get presented with all this interactive information that's coming to you from the battle lines and information about diplomacy issues. And you have to get, you're, you're forced to make decisions in a very timed environment. Wow. And then so you see how everyone else voted around you. And then you find out what would have happened had the country actually, had Washington made that decision. You find That's out great. often that you would have ruined the country if you made the decision. <laughs> and then you find out kind of, well, what did Washington do? Um, and so it's this really super, and so it's built in this, um, it feels like, you know, if you're in Washington's drawing room of sorts. So it's an immersive space. You're at his writing desk of sorts, but then built into it is all this touchscreen technology and a huge LED wall in front of you that brings to life, you know, the advisors that give you advice throughout. I, I love the idea of the interaction, um, especially basing off of decision making, because then you get to weigh the history and the choices that people made, and it just creates such a better context for things. Um, rather than just going to a museum right. and reading and just taking in what's there, you have serious consequences. So that's fantastic that your your team, yourself, and your team are pushing beyond just visuals, just these temporary things, but really diving into something deeper. It's a, it's just it's just a different way of learning and you know getting getting people excited. So so B Washington, this is kind of works into our segment because we're about to be Gary Solomon Jr. I think we're just going to ask a few different uh, questions and really figure out who is Gary. So I think we're going to start light. 
Um, but I don't think we can continue without really acknowledging the space that we are in right uh, now. Good point. Um, we are in the CBD in downtown New Orleans. We're no longer in, uh, in Cicada's our- little hive. We are upstairs in Gary's um, personal apartment. And that's putting it in such vague terms because it's great to hear how you talk about design and how you talk about these creations. And we are now uh, recording in you know, a place that I hope that you have maybe some design influence on here. Maybe you can talk about how you came about this building and then this upstairs space. So um, I mentioned Alan Eskew a bit earlier. Alan was a very good friend. I miss him a lot. Um, and so we were working on a couple projects with Alan. Um, and um, I went to him one day and I said, Alan, I'm going to need a new office building sometime soon. I was in um, a gallery space that was rented down on South Peters. And he said, I've got the building for you. I said, okay. He said, meet me there. This was like a Saturday morning. He said, meet me over there like right now. And I was like, okay. So I walked over to this building. It was um, the Dr. Tishner company had owned it. Um, and then Bellwether owned it um, around the same time, I guess. And so Alan brought me in here one day. It was a mess. And he said, this is where you need to have your office and you need to live upstairs. I was like, you've lost your mind. That is awesome. I mean, okay. So really it was Alan that helped me find this building and, and had the vision for it. He passed, unfortunately, in the process of design on oh, it. Come on. Um, his partner, Steve Dumez, was really leading on it. And, and Steve did a great job. And Brian Bachman and his partner, Jack Forbes, did the interiors with me. Um, so it was a, there was a lot of help. Um, right. I, I wish I could say I made all these choices. Um, <laughs> they are far more talented <laughs> than I would ever be making choices like these. But I do feel, um, I feel really comfortable here every day. And it's great to have the connection to to work downstairs um, and live upstairs. And some people say, how do you get away? Or what? The reality is our work is on the road so much that when I'm home, I want to be really near the office because it's so few times um, that you know we get to spend uh, a couple days in a row, even in New Orleans, that why spend it commuting, um, knock out the work and living thing at the same time and enjoy what the city has to offer? Well, it seems it's perfect because I'm going to describe the space a little bit. But when you walk into the entrance of the office building, your office is right off the main entrance. And we didn't realize that we'd be taking the secret back staircase <laughs> entrance upstairs into your apartment to record. And it was really just a... It's a, like a bat cave moment. Yeah, it's a very intimate experience. It's like, here's your here's your work environment. And then you get this immediate transition into your personal space. Um, and I'm just going to describe where we're sitting right now. We're sitting at a small little table, uh, a very quaint table in the space. But there's this beautiful like 20 foot by 20 foot rug that That's we are massive. in, which is kind of, uh, you know, just... Uh, sprinkled with beautiful chairs and couches and open roof ceiling joys throughout you got the exposed ac beautiful pendants a lot of you know modern um millwork that kind of runs throughout that kind of creates a theme seamus and i were geeking out a little bit we were geeking out we were actually super pumped right out here you're like running around we were like (laughs) how far can we walk around here we're actually pretty pumped too because our space is kind of echoey and we're like man this is an upgrade so we appreciate you having us happy to have you guys Okay, we're going to switch it up a bit, and I think we're just going to ask a few different uh, questions and really figure out who is Gary. Favorite place to eat in New Orleans? This month. This, that, that. <laughs> um, this week. Probably ever is still Bayona. Great answer. Uh, current artist you're listening to? Uh, Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar. No. <laughs> 
I, I geek out over this band that I found in the UK called the Wombats, and like oh, I, they just the released a new album, so I'm listening to it again. They're coming here to Champion Square. I've never seen them play in New Orleans. I Perfect. usually like have to travel around to find them. So, um, yeah, and and then also my other I'm listening to is um, Ross Dam from Vampire Weekend, who no longer is Vampire Weekend, but. Um, also released a new album recently. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's he was just here. He played Gossa okay. Gossa okay. like a month ago. Great, oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, we were just jamming to that in the office. The I love day. Vampire. I didn't know. I didn't it's know different. This this, okay. this this is different, and okay. it's kind of it's. You should listen to it. It's totally different. Okay, cool. He's expressing himself uh, solo. Okay. <laughs> Guilty pleasure after a long day of work. Uh, did you see the wine room when you came in? I did not. But okay, but now we'll I'm the wine room on the way. <laughs> we'll, that's yeah, we'll the guilty it. pleasure after work. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so now we're going to kind of switch into the design aspect and the architectural aspect. Clearly, through your schooling, I can find some similarities between um, this theater performance and technical side of things and the architecture side of things. School for us was also very difficult, and there's definitely a few dropouts here and there. Um, It takes someone with a very rigorous mind, I think, to get through the program. Definitely. Um, But it's very rewarding at the end of it. And you do come out with a, a kind of a plethora of skills that you, you're not really sure what to do. You could really take them anywhere. Um, you realize as you get older, you could really do anything. But. Which is great because they kind of give you, you know, how, how to use the library of resources. So I want to ask you, what do you see as good design, whether that's in your profession or in your personal life? So I think, to me, good design is where it leads to positive and good audience interaction. You know, I think it's not just about what the visual is, but how people use it. And I think that's overlooked sometimes. Um, I think it's it could be an amazing like artistic statement, but that doesn't mean it's really good design in my view. Um, if it doesn't work with the live audience that's in it, and so um, to me, it's about the connection between the experience and the space, and um, you know, a, a space that is that is you know, over the top and grandiose, but you don't feel comfortable in. I don't know that it really serves the purpose quite right, unless the purpose is to make a statement. So I think it's, well, I think you mentioned um, in, you know, architecture schooling or even in design school that we went to, to us, it was all about understanding concept and like, what's the reason for it and then designing to that. Um, And I think without a strong understanding of who our audience is, you can't arrive at good design. And I, I feel like there's a similarity there again. And we were kind of taught to, to think about, to make this thing, to make this object beautiful and it was rare to find a professor um, where your main focus was to make sure that the inhabitant was comfortable. And in your case, your inhabitant would have to be enjoying themselves or at least engaged in the experience. Um, so I think that's a great answer. Where do you find inspiration? It's kind of off of architecture, but where do you find inspiration in design? Sure. I think that um, I was always you know, a product of theater. And I still find a lot of the inspiration for our work and what we end up uh, creating in theater. I mean, it's the, it's the most, it's the nearest training path to what we do, <laughs> you know. And so, as an art form, uh, there's a lot to pull from there. Um, and theatrical techniques are amazing because it's, um, it's selling the invisible, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, and there's something about how can you create an authentic artificial environment and that's what you're doing every day in the theater and so when you lose that authenticity um, it starts to feel staged and that's wrong Um, and so theater is where I think I still look to find a lot of inspiration when you do it you see it it's done right you know it because it feels it feels real it's natural yeah what's your favorite play 
that's a tough one. All right. It's a really tough I one. I guess that's I kind of it. asking me, like, what's my favorite architecture? Yeah. You know? I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. It depends on what you're looking for. Yeah. That's <laughs> you point. know? That's I mean, it depends on what kind of night you want to have. Right. That's you know? fair. It's kind of like when you pick a restaurant, too. It's like you've, you're good. choosing cuisine. Yeah. You know? So um, if I'm feeling Mexican, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably not going to go to Marcello's. All right. You know? that's, that's a good point. So. Good answer. Good answer. All right. I won't hold you to it. Sorry. I punted. No, you're good. So if we can steer this back maybe to New Orleans, are, are there any architectural spaces that maybe you feel work really well or are there anything that you any spaces or designs that you feel like don't work well especially here in this city which is so culturally influenced so i think a space that works really well is and i'm not saying because we're connected to it but i spend a lot of time there so i think about it a lot is i think that the the world war ii museum has a space that works quite well because i think they realize that the architectural statement was on the outside you know the new buildings are built from an architectural perspective perspective so that the outside really is kind of the the icon shot Mm -hmm. and the inside is all about the exhibits Mm -hmm. and I've been to many museums that are new construction where the building kind of overpowers the the point of attending which is not to marvel at the new architecture it's to it's to understand the subject matter that you're there to learn about. So I think in that way, functionally, World War II does an incredible job because they've got the statement that says this is a real thing when you arrive. And then once you get in, you get lost in the story. And it's an extreme contrast to the city. You don't find very mm-hmm. modern, striking, um, uh, uh, solid concrete forms in the city. And now they're uh, in the final stage of erecting the large canopy, which, which we're working on. Oh, you oh, are. Fantastic. Come on. A lighting statement. There'll be quite a lighting statement. So wow. I take a run almost every day after work <laughs> and I love to see the progress just because the the columns, the, they're almost these space trusses that are holding up, seeing them come to life. It's really daunting and you don't see very like large vertical shapes in New Orleans, and to see that slowly like come to fruition is fantastic. It's going to be a monster when it's done. I mean, it's going to be, I think when you step back, if, if I can imagine that there's the blimp shot, right, when the next Super Bowl is here, right. and the blimp is shooting back at the city from over the Mississippi, there's going to be the bridge, there's going to be the dome, there's going to be this canopy of peace. I mean, it, those are going to be the things you see the most, I believe, because um, it's just going to be a modern architectural statement unlike anything we have currently. Can you dive into how you guys are going to be lighting it? Yeah, so there's a, um, a system of lighting that's in the kind of upper parts of the canopy. Okay. And then there's the, the footings, as we were t- you were mentioning, kind of the space truss look, because it's a great description of it, the kind of light from underneath. Um, and it's the first step toward what's going to be a, um, a ticketed event in the space on a regular basis. It's going to be this immersive projection experience um, where it's called Expressions of America. Um, and the concept is it tells the story of kind of the victory of World War II um, through the expressions in which it was it was told then. So in, in the comics and the news, through love letters, through music, um, and it's just going to be a really kind of um, nighttime spectacular style show that uses the facades, the neutral facades of the buildings that surround the parade grounds where the canopy is being erected as the surfaces for projection. Wow. So it cool. activates these outside spaces um, that you know during the day or are, are a statement of their own at night become a canvas for telling stories. It's amazing. You definitely have your fingerprint on changing the skyline of New Orleans. Does that ever kind of like slowly come to you at 3 a.m. In, in the middle of the night where you're like, you, you really are making an impact on people's lives and the city as a whole? I mean, it's a, it's a tough act to follow in New Orleans because there's so much good design and architecture and statements that are just been naturally here for hundreds of years. And so, you know, I, 
I think what we do is I think we try to give them longer life in terms of, you know, once the sun goes down. Um, it's a great and, way of putting it. You know, we're trying to extend the duration of, you know, extra 12 hours in the day that those that those spaces or those facades um, kind of have an impact on you passing by. Well, the life of the city sometimes kind of uh, comes to its true self when when the sun goes down. Um, all, all the, the good and bad that is New Orleans, all the beautiful things slowly come out of all the dark places and you're kind of lighting those up. There's a lot of uh, multiple personalities, you know, and I think that the daytime and nighttime personality of the city are quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because the medium in which we work is, you know, better showcased at night, um, it seems to be the one we gravitate to. Gary, where is the future of Solomon Group going? I really want to continue. Um, we've got a great path. Uh, toward building museum exhibits around the country, um, building the biggest events around the country. I imagine a time where you click through TV and, you know, if it's live, we're behind it. Um, so that's that's what we continue to do. Nothing, there's no, like, revolutionary plans to expand anywhere that we're not already because our work is so nomadic. I mean, we're kind of like gypsies, you know, we pack up and we take the show on the road. Um, and so whether it's, you know, building a museum exhibit or it's an event, um, if we're there for a couple months or just for a week, um, that that hustle is is something we really enjoy. The diversity in the work is 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 gratifying, and I think that we have a, a team that takes a lot of pride in it. Because when you're done with it, and you can walk your grandfather through the exhibit you built at World War II that you physically built, or you can tell your kid to turn on the TV. You know, Dad made the scenic piece that you're about to see Kendrick Lamar stand on. I mean, that those are like that's why you do it, and so. Um, no grand plans here other than continuing on the same path to try to bring that little bit of backstage magic to as many exhibits and broadcasts and events as we can. Since you have had your imprint on the city and you still are, and your family has a history of imprint of the city and the entire Gulf South, where do you want to be personally in the next five to 10 years? Is there something that you're striving for personally on on a deeper level? I think New Orleans has um, has a lot to be fixed. Um, it's got a lot going for it too, but a lot to be fixed. And so, I mean, on a personal level, I, I really want to see how, since we're successful, um, and with that success comes the responsibility to to give back. You know, how can we best leverage what can I offer in a in a you know, it's just a private sector kind of guy. Um, what can I do to help here? I think when you look around, there's a lot of people who who, um, who strive to be a part of what we do, and that's really humbling because you know we get applications for work every day, and it's quite nice. Um, but there's got to be a way that beyond just you know putting someone to work on a job that we can um, kind of help this be a better place to live and recruit to, and and I think that's that's where my my interest has been shifting as of late. You know, I I, I think it's it's an exciting time in New Orleans in a lot of ways, and it's a very um, it's a kind of like make it or break it kind of time in a lot of ways too. Is know? there is there a specific part of philanthropy that you'd like to talk about on that note? I think I think the work that I've done at NOCA has been because I love it so much. I mean, I spent eight years on the board there, two years as chair, and then when they realized I was termed out, they put me on the school board side of it because they didn't want me to leave that campus. I feel like I spent my whole adult and, and part of my high school life there. I think it's a great example. I mean, it's teaching young people to think in a way that whether they become professional artists or they go become doctors, you know, it's it's like you were saying a moment ago, Seamus, about when you get that architectural training. I mean, they teach you how to think in concept, and and you can probably apply it to anything. Um, I mean, that's a that's a design minded 
thinking strategy that needs to be taught more. Um, I think that the way NOCA um, has the academic studio now where you can you can study the full day there instead of having to split your day like I did um, as a young person is a real opportunity. Um, and in the way that that curriculum is designed, it has you think through science and math as integrated curriculum and through humanities and, and history as, as, as integrated as well. And so like the approach to teaching there is pretty revolutionary. And I think that we need to try to bring um, that design um, thinking into the classroom, um, even if it's not at NOCA, you know? And that's so great. I think that that's something that I'm passionate about. I don't know where I'm going to take it quite yet, but the time I've spent there the last um, eight or nine years watching those programs develop since I've been back in New Orleans has been inspiring and more people need it than NOCA can provide. Well, that's great. I, I think we're, we both look forward to seeing what Solomon Group does and then what you do personally. I, I think there's bright things ahead. It's been great. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Well, thanks. It's been fun doing it too. It's a nice way to end a Friday. All right, you guys. We hope y'all enjoyed Gary as much as we did interviewing him. Um, we learned a lot about the behind the scenes of who Solomon Group is and who Gary is. Yeah, it's great to hear about how someone has this much of an impact in the city, and it's typically something you may not know about. Um, and we really enjoyed interviewing. So, as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Bucure, located near Frenchman Street in the Marigny, and PJ's Coffee on Jackson and Magazine Street, Uptown. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.